It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of the murder of two children. Today is Friday, January 13th, and we have just gotten out of the pre-trial hearing in the case against Richard Allen. And this pretrial hearing specifically focused on issues of discovery and change of venue and the gag order. Let's not bury the lead. The big news out of this hearing is this trial will be held in Carroll County in Delphi, Indiana, which is where these two young girls lived and died. The court and all of the attorneys acknowledged that it would be difficult, if not impossible, to draw a fair and unbiased jury from the residents of Carroll County, since so many people here have some sort of personal connection to the case. 
So what the plan is, is that a jury will be drawn from another county, a county yet to be determined, and that jury will be brought to Carroll County so the case can be heard here. Uh, it's also a matter of convenience since so many of the witnesses and family members live here. In addition to that, we will be discussing the questions and sort of events surrounding the discovery process in this case, which both the defense and the prosecution have recently filed motions regarding. And we will also talk about our general impressions and experience at this pretrial hearing. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're the Murder Sheet. And this is The Delphi Murders, Richard Allen's pretrial hearing on discovery, the gag order, and change of venue. So we'll start off by just kind of giving you an overview of our experience here and what it was like to be here at the pretrial hearing. If our sound sounds a little bit weird today, we do apologize. We were actually recording this right now from the Delphi Library just a few minutes after we got out of the hearing, and somehow we actually forgot one of our microphones at home. So we're sharing a mic today, and it'll be interesting, but uh, we apologize. We're not very good at packing. We drove up here yesterday and stayed overnight so we could get to the courthouse early. Previously, in the last hearing, uh, there was a huge media presence and a lot of locals who came out to sort of view the hearing. And uh, we wanted to ensure that we were going to get seats, so we came early. Uh, We were actually sort of first in line uh, once the line started forming up outside the courthouse. It was much less crowded today, though. There were less media, there were less locals coming to see it. I think the initial, the first pretrial hearing was very much packed because, you know, I think the the arrest was still relatively new then and and people were curious and there was a lot of media coverage. It's not that that's gone away. There's still a lot of media interest and public interest. It's just not every hearing is necessarily going to attract the same level. And this hearing kind of was getting into some, you know, 
a little bit more in-depth aspects of the upcoming trials. So I think, you know, that's another aspect of this. We uh, waited outside from around 6 a.m. onward, maybe maybe more like 6.30, actually. Uh, it was very early. We're pretty tired. We're not really morning people. It's very cold. It actually started snowing. So all the on the media people, the podcasters, the the reporters, the TV people, print people are kind of like huddled in this archway at the courthouse to give you a sense of what it was like. And then you just sort of look inside and there's this bustle of Carroll County Sheriff's deputies, uh, Indiana State troopers, uh, deputies from other counties who've kind of been kind of pulled in to help. And they're all arranging the security, making sure everything is secure and set up and underway. We saw a lot of familiar faces from Indiana State Police and Carroll County Sheriff's Office, people who have been in the media over this case. And you're sort of watching them getting set up. Uh, They're yelling at you to kind of get away from the door. Actually, that's just me. They yelled at me to get away from the door. (laughs) So oops. But this is just kind of giving you a sense of like the level of security here because Richard Allen was in fact at the hearing today and they wanted to make sure that this was going to be a safe environment for him and for everybody else. So that's why they're putting in all the metal detectors. It's not just for show. It's because, you know, it's 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 the court's duty to keep everybody safe here. And that means kind of scanning everybody. So we finally got in at around 8 a.m. They let us in the building, which was good because it was very cold outside. And uh, they started patting us down. And then we got to go upstairs and sort of wait in the courtroom for a while. As we said last time, it's a very pretty courtroom. And, you know, you just get a lot of reporters, different media figures talking to one another and uh, comparing notes and then just kind of talking about odds and ends. And so it was nice to see a lot of familiar faces and uh, chat with some people. Uh, so that's always very enjoyable. But, you you know, at the same time, there's kind of, a, you know, it, you know that you're there because two little girls were horribly murdered. So it kind of keeps things from getting, you know, overly uh, chatty. It's, it, 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 I feel like once in a while, like there'd be kind of people talking or laughing and then like things would kind of get solemn and silent again. So like, it's just kind of, I think everybody remembers why they're there. And I think it's worth noting as well that all of the attorneys in the case arrived in the courtroom quite early. And as a matter of fact, the attorneys and Judge Cole actually had an extended private meeting in her chambers to discuss some of the issues that would be covered in this hearing. And that uh, discussion in her chambers actually went on so long that it delayed the start of the hearing itself. Yes. And if you know Judge Gall's, Judge Frangal's reputation, she's very punctual. So we imagine that they were speaking about some pretty in- important aspects of the case for it to be delayed so much. And uh, we got a bit of a hint from some of the comments the attorneys made on the record that kind of uh, indicated what what they were talking about. And we'll get into that later. But there was a delay. Uh, everyone's kind of waiting in anticipation. I know I kept on like looking back to see when they were going to take Richard Allen in. Um, th- that's always an interesting moment. And I not- noted that uh, Andrew Baldwin, one of Allen's attorneys, sort of draped his coat and scarf over two of the seats in the front of the court room that were reserved for family members. And we sort of figured, okay, that's going to be where likely Alan's mother and wife will be sitting. 
So the judge actually came in to the courtroom and called the court to order at 10.26, which is about 26 minutes later than scheduled. And shortly after that, Andrew Baldwin led two women into the courtroom. And those two women sat in the chairs he had reserved. Again, we're assuming that that was uh, Mr. Allen's wife and mother. Almost immediately after that, Allen was led in. He was uh, wearing yellow. His uh, arms were chained and manacled in front of him. And as he passed the two women that Baldwin had let in, he mouthed the words, I love you to them. Yes, and I saw the woman, I believe, is his wife, Kathy, mouth the words, I love you as well. So uh, he's a very small man in terms of his stature. He seemed like more faded this time. I don't really know how to describe it, like paler somehow. Uh, And just very, he and his family members to me looked like the word I would describe all of them as is stricken. You know, it's kind of this horror. And, you know, I'm just, I'm just describing what I see here. I'm not weighing in on, you know, what, what this man's guilt or innocence. I'm just commenting about, what expressions I'm seeing in the, these people who are gathered here for this obviously very serious charges against this person of murdering two little girls. And it's just interesting to sort of see up close from, from the looks of it, from the fact that they were there and su- there to support him. And there was an exchange of mouthed, I love yous between husband and wife that would indicate that, you know, she's certainly standing by him at this point. So um, always interesting to note And then uh, the judge uh, began the hearing. Uh, She initially reminded everyone of the rules of decorum, which uh, are quite strict. They're also the same rules that held at the last hearing. And then she apologized for the hearing starting late, and she explained it was because they were discussing in chambers some of the issues uh, that would be discussed in court today. And it was pretty clear that those discussions must have been fruitful because it uh, sounded like a lot of agreements had been reached even before these people stepped into the courtroom for the uh, formal public part of the hearing. Absolutely. There's a lot of agreement between prosecution and defense on this one. Uh, She began by addressing the issue of the gag order. She said that when all of the attorneys were in her chambers, she reminded them, in an interesting word there, she reminded them (laughs) of the rules of professional responsibility and what attorneys are permitted to say and what attorneys are not permitted to say about their cases. And she said, uh, basically, it would be all right for attorneys to talk about procedural matters, matters of calendar. For instance, it would be okay to say, to the press, there is a bail hearing scheduled on February 17th. Here's what a bail hearing is. And presumably it would not be okay to start discussing more substantive uh, matters of the case itself in the press. Right. Here's what we're going to do in the bail hearing. You you can say there is a bail hearing. You can't say what we're going to do, what we think about it, why the prosecution's wrong, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and basically this all goes back to her stated goals. Uh, Judge Gold does not want this case to be tried in the press. This is a very no-nonsense judge. She does things by the book is what her reputation is. And 
this hearing was certainly no different. One element, you know, as Kevin mentioned, if your phone goes off in her court, it's destroyed. It's not confiscated. It's confiscated and destroyed. So I think everybody in the media who covers this and members of the public who are coming in are very aware of that. And there's that level of respect and acknowledgement that if I show a lack of respect, there will be consequences. And we can assure you that this topic of phones getting destroyed is on the forefront of the minds of a lot of reporters in these uh, who cover these hearings. Yes. Certainly, as we stood in line, it was something that was talked about a lot. She's really caught the attention of reporters, and I dare say she's even put the fear of God into them. I think she has. I think she has put the fear of God into the Indiana media because, I mean— a phone is a reporter's lifeline. Most of us can't do our jobs without being able to call people. All our contacts are on there. So the idea of somebody coming and destroying our phone because of a mistake we made is something that I think terrifies a lot of people. And there's this understanding that, you know, okay, that's a that's a real threat. I mean, getting it confiscated, maybe some more unscrupulous people. I'm not saying any of the people covering Delphi would do this, but just you might want to see if you can record. But if uh, but if you know it's going to be destroyed, if, if anything goes wrong with that that plan, then you're you know probably better off just not tempting fate. I'd like to remind you all that we've been told that this is not an empty threat, and we've talked to court observers who say they have seen George, yeah. Judge Gull order the destruction of phones. So if your phone's ever been destroyed by Judge Gull, please contact us because we want to hear that story. She also reminded the family members in this case that they are potentially witnesses in the case. And so therefore the gag order applies to them as well. And that brings up another point. Families of both Abby and Libby were here in in full force today. They're representing these two little girls that were taken from them. And so to me, it's always a very poignant moment when they're walking in together and, and sort of coming and observing this because they have waited for so long for any sort of semblance of justice in this case. And, uh, you know, they're, they're not allowed to speak to the press now on the record. So that's not something we're going to be hearing from them for a while now. Uh, although I'm sure they'll speak once whatever uh, trial, you know, gets concluded. They're very much there and continuing to be advocates for their, these lost children, even, um, even if they can't speak to the press uh, due to the gag order. And we'll get back to our discussion of what happened this morning right after this quick word from our sponsors. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. 
With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20 percent of your weight in one year in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. EMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So the next issue that was covered in the hearing pertained to discovery. You will remember, I'm sure, that back in December, the defense filed a lengthy discovery request with the court. And so today was supposed to be a day when the prosecution would respond to it. It was interesting that actually the prosecution ended up filing a pretty detailed response to that last night, or rather yesterday. I'm going to quickly go through some of that with you. I'm not going to read it all, but uh, certainly we'll go through it enough to give you a sense of it. And we'll link to our episode discussing the defense's discovery request in our show notes, so you can go back and listen to that if you need a refresher. I'm going to zip through and give you quick summaries of what the defense was asking for in their first six requests. They said they wanted the names and addresses of persons whom the state of Indiana intends to call as witnesses. Uh, They want the names and addresses of people the state of Indiana knows who have knowledge pertinent to the cause of action, but who Indiana does not intend to call as witnesses in the case. They also want the names and last known addresses of persons who will not be witnesses in the case, but who have information about the case. They want uh, any and all written statements uh, made by Richard Allen that uh, the state has uh, records of. They want uh, any reports of any experts who've conducted tests connected to the case. They want, uh, this is something that uh, we highlighted before, they want a statement as to whether the defendant or any other person who participated in the alleged crime was acting directly or indirectly at the investigation or on the behalf of the state of Indiana or one of its agents, and if so, state the names and addresses of such individuals. And the prosecution in their motion yesterday said, basically, uh, we have no problem with any of that. All that information in those first five requests will be given to the defense. And again, discovery is the process by which 
the uh, usually the prosecution gives information about the case they have and the, the case they intend to present to the defense. We all know that the prosecution, the state of Indiana law enforcement, has been working on this case for uh, over five years. So they have amassed a wealth of information on this case, on different leads and such. And so the defense basically needs to have access to that information in order to uh, come up with a reasonable defense. So the sixth thing that the defense asked for in their motion for discovery is we want to know if you gave, basically, did you make a deal with anybody to give information or to testify in this case? And the state in their response said, at this time, no promises have been made by the state to any witnesses. So that's pretty significant. And it's pretty important considering one angle of this case that we've covered extensively. Which is? Kagan Klein. So this is the 28-year-old man who's currently incarcerated facing a trial regarding child sexual abuse materials who uh, basically was revealed to have been in communication with Libby in the lead up to the murders. And a lot of people have speculated, uh, you know, not unreasonably necessarily that Kagan Klein has struck a deal with law enforcement. And that's why Richard Allen was arrested. um, And that, you know, some of the developments with him indicate that he's working with them now. And maybe, you know, in a situation like that, you might imagine that if, law enforcement is willing to let him off the hook regarding the CSAM charges, then maybe he'll testify. That's kind of what people have been speculating. But here the prosecution essentially throws cold water on that because they're saying we didn't make any deals with anybody. They say uh, at this time, no promises have been made by the state, any witnesses. If you want to play devil's advocate, you can say they're choosing their words carefully there. Yeah, I mean, they are lawyers. <laughs> so we haven't made any promises to anybody, but maybe we've made suggestions. Maybe we've winked at somebody. But, you know, I mean, as far as a formal deal, and frankly, if you're dealing with somebody who has such a bad relationship with the truth as Keg and Klein, but also who has, you know, I mean, like, he's facing some pretty serious charges. So if I were his defense attorney, who's Andrew Aki, of course, Uh, I wouldn't necessarily want to be doing anything with the police unless I had some ironclad agreement and promises rather than just like, maybe we'll help you out. So then moving on to their seventh request, that that was basically, we want the names and addresses of people you don't intend to call as witnesses, but who were questioned or interviewed by Indiana at some point during the preparation of this case. And again, the prosecution basically said, no problem. Yeah, that's part of discovery. So obviously we'll do that. Uh, and then we have something interesting. The eighth request that the defense made is we want the grand jury testimony of a witness once that witness has testified. And what was the prosecution's response to that? And they said there was not a grand jury held in relation to this matter. So if there's no grand jury, there's no testimony to be given to the grand jury. When we saw that in the defense's request we kind of our ears perked up because we were like was there a grand jury that we just never heard about that seemed unlikely because while they're secret you know oftentimes it gets out that there is being one held even if the contents discussed are secret secret. uh but we never heard anything so this just kind of clarifies that's there they were just kind of putting that in because it's boilerplate language and it didn't come up with anything 
And then the ninth request that the defense made is also interesting. They wanted a summary of any statement or conversation made by or engaged in by the defendant and overheard by any persons. And what was the response to the ninth? Any statements made by witnesses and or the defendant will be forwarded to the defense as part of discovery per local rule. So that's, you know, basically we'll give it that to you because obviously it's part of discovery. And then they kind of get a little salty, frankly. The state does not intend to draft a summary of those statements or give the defense a summary of the state's opinions or thoughts about those statements. Those statements will be provided to the defense in their entirety. The defense seems to be asking the state to do their work for them and formulate a defense for them. The state objects to the defense's request that the state draft a separate summary of those statements. Yeah, that is a little bit saucy, it's isn't a, it? It's a little bit salty. It's a little bit saucy. Frankly, I, I want to say, I think maybe this is a good time to say at this point that uh, we've complimented some of the defense's strategic moves in their motions because they sort of are telling a story to the public and to the press. And I think Nick McClelland uh, kind of gave it back to them in this here, in, in this uh, filing. He, he kind of is basically, like, I'm not going to do your job for you guys. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think that was good to see the prosecution kind of stepping up. There's been a lot of kind of little digs that the defense has gotten in there. This is a little dig that the prosecution's getting in there. Basically saying, we are going to give you what we're supposed to give you because that's the rules of discovery. We're not going to, like, do extra work for you and, like, summarize. Here's our thoughts on this because you, that's not part of discovery. We don't have to, you know, do your own jobs. So I, I, it was kind of gratifying to see more of a back and forth here. Because previously, it really was only the defense kind of getting in some of those punches, I think. Request number 10 was uh, they wanted a statement as to whether any telephone calls were made by the defendant following his arrest and whether those calls were taped or overheard. And then they wanted, if the conversation was overheard, they wanted the prosecution to produce a memorandum of the conversation overheard, together with the names and addresses of all persons overhearing such conversation. What was the response to request 10? Any telephone calls made by the defendant will be turned over to the defense as part of discovery per local rule. So once again, we're going to follow the rules. Then the state objects to drafting memorandum of the conversation. Again, the state incorporates the response to number nine into this response. If there are transcripts of the phone calls, the state will provide those as part of discovery per the local rule. So they're basically just saying, like, we're going to give you all the raw materials that we've collected. We're not going to, like, get to work boiling it all down for you because uh, that's not part of discovery. You get the, you get, you know, and, and uh, you can understand the defense wading into this, like, morass of information. They maybe want some summaries, but also the prosecution's basically saying, we're dealing with that, too. We don't have time to, like, spell it out for you. Uh, I'm going to uh, zip here through requests 11 and 12. They wanted all phone records and stuff related to uh, Richard Allen, which they might use in the prosecution. They also wanted a record of uh, any arrests in the background of any witnesses or any people involved in the uh, trial. And they said no prosecution's problem. like, great, sure. No problem. No problem. That's the official legal term. Then we come to request 13. They want a record of arrests criminal convictions, and juvenile records, which may be used of any witness who is listed on the defense witness list, including the defendant. What was the response to request 13? 
The state objects to providing criminal records for the defense witness list in that the state does not even know who is going to be on their witness list. If the defense requests criminal records of specific people, the state is happy to assist in gathering those records. So that's a little bit interesting. So basically they're saying we can't give you criminal records of defense witnesses because we don't even know who you intend to call. After you decide who you want to call, let us know and we'll see what we can do. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a little more sass. Okay, I'm going to zip through requests 14 through 16. Uh, 14 is basically they want copies of all case reports. Uh, they also, in, in number 15, they want a list of times the defendant, Richard Allen, appeared in any lineups. And then they want information in request number 16 about any uh, searches of uh, Allen's uh, residence or vehicle. And what do they say for 14 through 16? This information will be forwarded to the defense as part of discovery per local rule. Basically, no problem. Now we come to request number 17. Uh, The defense requested a statement in writing by the prosecuting attorney that he has or has no information touching upon any matter of law or fact favorable to Richard Allen or a written memorandum of such favorable information. What was the response to 17? The state objects to said request by the defense. Any information that the state has pertaining to the case will be forwarded to the defense as part of discovery, both exculpatory and inculpatory. A memorandum explaining those is outside the scope of discovery. The defendant's request is essentially an interrogatory, asking the state to divulge its legal analysis or impressions of the case and assist the defense in assembling its evidence, which is barred by state ex-rel grammar versus Tippecanoe Circuit Court. So basically they're saying we have to give you the information and the data we have. We don't need to tell you our analysis of it. It's up to you to analyze it yourself and we're not going to do your work for you. We'll give you the apples, but we're not making you an apple pie (coughs) is my stupid version of that. Uh, And it kind of, you know, it's just kind of interesting where they're kind of like, they're kind of poking the defense a little bit here, which is kind of uh, what the defense has been doing to them. So, again, it's kind of good to see McClelland kind of hitting back at some of this. Uh, let's zip through requests 18 through 20. They wanted uh, any evidence which the state has, which may be favorable to Richard Allen. Uh, request 19, they want any uh, demonstrative exhibits prepared by the state. And number 20 is they want any report by any cellular carrier whose records were obtained to determine the location of calls. And what was the... the Yeah, it was just the standard yes. That sounds good. I mean, they didn't literally write that. It was actually this information will be forwarded to the defense as part of discovery per local rule. But basically, no objection. Take it. Requests number 21 to 23 all pertained in some way to the defense wanting information about the lawsuit that Carroll County, the former Carroll County Sheriff's Deputy Mike Thomas filed against Carroll County. Uh, We've discussed that lawsuit at length in an earlier episode. Actually, two-part episode, and we will link to those in our show notes so you can listen along and follow all the context around that. But... Uh, I think to boil it down, to share our own specific opinions here, and I'm, I'm labeling these as opinions, um, it's a sideshow. 
It's, it doesn't, it's not relevant. It's really not relevant, but the defense is certainly working hard to inject it into the case. And the reason being is, you know, from a view that's sympathetic to the defense, it, it, you know, makes the local authorities look bad and, you know, they, they want to do that because that benefits their case. So certainly understandable why they're doing that strategically, but from the perspective of, you know, people who like the truth and not, you know, conspiracy theories, it's, you know, less than ideal. <laughs> so why don't you, why don't you read us the state's response to request 21, which pertains to this? And also they said that response also applies to request 22 and 23, which also pertain to the lawsuits. The state objects to this request by the defense. Trial Rule 34 states that a request for production has to be for items in the possession, custody, or control of the party upon whom the request is served. Trial Rule 26B1 goes on to state that the court can limit discovery if the information is obtainable from some other source that is more convenient, less burdensome, or less expensive. The state of Indiana is not in possession of the information that the defense is requesting, nor was the state a party to any lawsuits filed against the Carroll County Sheriff's Department, Tobe Lesenby, Tony Liggett, or Michael Thomas. To impose of the state to have to track all these items down is unreasonably burdensome. In addition, it is the state's belief that this request goes beyond the scope of discovery. There is no reason that the state is aware of where this information would be relevant in any way to the investigation or prosecution of the defendant. So basically he's saying, since we're not a party to the suit, we're not privy to all of the filings, uh, we don't have those filings, has nothing to do with us, and by the way, it's also not at all relevant to this case. And so, like, get it elsewhere. Do your own research. Do your own research. And if you think it's that relevant, you know, run it down. But like, leave us out of it. We've got enough to deal with. This is a very, uh, this is, you know, on the one hand, the defense team is small. It's two attorneys. And on the other hand, the Carroll County Prosecutor's Office is tiny. So you have a, a, a very few people doing a lot of work in this case. And basically McClellan saying, like, let's not waste a lot of time on this sideshow. Look it up yourself. And we'll get back to our discussion of what happened this morning right after this quick word from our sponsors. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. 
Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Uh, let's look at uh, defense requests 24 and 25. In 24, they wanted a list of any individuals who insisted with the investigation. Uh, in 25, they wanted uh, documentation, including photos, videos, or audio recordings that may have been associated with uh, viewings uh, at the Freedom Bridge and Mornon Trail involving persons of interest. And again, the prosecution said, great, sure. So then we come to request number 26. Pursuant to Rule 404 of the United Rules of Evidence, uh, you are requested to state the general nature of any evidence of other crimes, wrongs, or acts of the defendant, or any anticipated defense witness, which the state intends to offer for any purpose, and state which exception the state would rely upon as contained in the Rules of Evidence for its admission. This is about character evidence. We talked about this at length before. Basically, you can't go into court and say, well, we know the defendant committed this murder because we know he's a bad guy. Look, uh, earlier we have proof that he yelled at his wife or look here, he kicked a dog. You can't do things like that. You can't say he's guilty because he's a bad guy. If you have evidence of him being a bad guy, there has to be a specific reason why you admit it. It has to be relevant. And so that is what that is related to. So they're asking the prosecution to essentially give them a heads up on other bad things they feel Alan has done so they can brace for it, basically? Is that what they're asking? Uh, That's basically what they seem to be asking. And what's interesting is that the prosecution hasn't even indicated they intend to offer that kind of evidence. Why don't you read the prosecution's response? State objects to said request. If the state chooses to use any evidence that would fall under Indiana Rules of Evidence, Rule 404B, the state will file notice with the court per the rule. Further, the request by the defendant must be reasonably understandable and sufficiently clear to alert the prosecution that the defendant is requesting pretrial notification. And they cite Abdul Musawir versus State. This request is neither reasonably understandable or sufficiently clear. The request seems to be a blanket request for any and all evidence that may be out there for the defendant and any defense witnesses, which they have yet to name. Nor has the defense asserted any kind of affirmative defense to put the state on notice that the character evidence may be at issue. So can you break down what exactly they're saying there? Listen, we don't understand what you're talking about. It's not clear. Get out of here. Uh, they're Yeah, they're saying... Uh, And we haven't even said we're going to do this kind of so-called character evidence. And if we do, we'll let you know. Yeah, like the state has to basically seemingly like ask permission almost to use that kind of evidence. So then the defense would be notified through that. But like we haven't even done that. So why are you why are you even asking about it here? Uh, Request number 27 is also related to character evidence and the same reply that we just read uh, serves as a reply for that as well. 
And let us uh, cover request number 28. Pursuant to Rule 405, the Indiana Rules of Evidence, you're requested to provide the undersigned with any and all relevant instances of conduct to be used by the state in cross-examination relative to evidence of a character or a trait of character of any person which is material. And the response to that was the state objects to this request. Per Indiana Rule of Evidence 405, the defense must first notify the state that they intend to introduce admissible character evidence and what that evidence is going to be before the state is obligated to disclose what character evidence will be used on behalf of the state. The defense has yet to provide any kind of pretrial notice to the state to require a response. So basically they're saying, we can't give this to you until you do what you're supposed to do first. Uh, 29 is the last of their requests. And they want a copy of uh, any information the prosecutor has about prospective jurors. And uh, the prosecutor said, fine. All right. So what is your take on this filing from Nick McClelland? Well, I'll tell you, this filing by Nick McClelland made me very interested to see what would happen in court today (laughs) in terms of discovery. And unfortunately, we don't really know what happened because uh, this seems to be one of the issues that was largely settled behind the scenes in the judge's chambers. And didn't didn't Judge Gull also note that regarding discovery, she would take it under advisement? Yes. She said that she's not going to rule on this motion. She's going to take it under advisement. And meanwhile, she wants counsel to continue to work on it. What does that mean, take it under advisement, in the context of a court? It means she's not going to issue a ruling. Uh, a ruling would obligate one or both parties to take, particular, to take specific actions. She's not going to do that. She's going to wait and try to let them figure it out themselves. If they can't figure out themselves, then she can step in and make a ruling. Okay. But her saying, I'm going to take it under advisement after a lengthy chambers conference with the defense and the prosecution does indicate somewhat that she's trusting of them to work it out themselves. It indicates a level of optimism. Yeah. Like we're, uh, we, it wasn't just everybody screaming at each other and saying, you know, I can't work with this guy. It was, you know, there was some level of like, okay, I'll do this. You do that. Blah, blah, blah. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, there was mostly, I mean, when, when like just as kind of like a little, you know, character beat, I guess when you had, uh, when Nicholas McClellan, the prosecutor for Carroll County, came into the courtroom, he went over to Brad Rosie and Andrew Baldwin, the defense attorneys. He shook their hands. Um, so it was, it's, it doesn't seem to be, you know, it's a professional situation. So we've talked about some of the filings being a bit salty or a bit, you know, of a pushback. But don't mistake that this is some sort of really unprofessional griping at one another. It seems to be very much, you know, the conflict is relegated to the courtroom and that people are treating with one another with, you know, seeming respect for the most part in this. So the final issue on the table was the, uh, the change of venue. Yes. And, and we alluded to this at the top of our episode and, and we kind of gave away what, what the ruling was, but judge Gull very eloquently stated that she completely agrees with the defense on this, essentially like they, there, there cannot be a, there cannot be a jury pool pulled from Carroll County not that the people of Carroll County are, are biased or, or not up to the task, but there is so much interconnectedness in this small community, this small county, that the risk of pulling a jury that would be problematic in some way and could possibly lead to like an appeal or it, it, it's too great. And they just 
there needs to be an, a, 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 there needs to be a conservative approach here to the jury, and she's acknowledging that. Um, I'll read. I'll read some of the my notes on that because I thought there were some interesting exchanges. Um, but just but going back to the discovery, one thing I Judge Gull was very much talking about. Like, I know you guys can work together. I know you could both could be very diligent. Thanks so much for being diligent. So she was very much like everybody get along, everybody work That's together. Right. She expects this level of professionalism from the attorneys in her court, just as she does the reporters in their court muting their cell phones and whatnot and being respectful. So this is just kind of more towards her character as a judge. At one point, Judge Gell said, my preference would be to acknowledge that we cannot pull a jury from Carroll County, essentially. And she also noted that there had been brief discussions between prosecution and the defense in her chambers and that, you know, they were kind of talking about possible counties in Indiana where they could pull a jury from. So those are preliminary a week from today, she wants basically some concrete, I guess, selections to be underway. When that will be announced, we don't know. But we remember the defense did ask for a jury 150 miles away from Carroll County, which would be the southernmost part of Indiana. Uh, whether or not Judge Gull will push it that far in terms of looking at counties is unclear, but she's very much in the camp of, you know, we can't have a jury from Carroll County. And so is Carroll County Prosecutor Nick McClelland. He had no objections to this. He was in complete agreement. So everybody's on the same page here that we have to go elsewhere for the jury. But that doesn't mean the trial's leaving Carroll County. So many witnesses, so many family members live here. And uh, it seems appropriate for the trial, as we said, to be held in the city where these girls lived and died. And if I could editorialize for a minute, I just think this is a terrific best of all world situation where, uh, you know, put yourself in the shoes of these family members who lost these two little girls, you know, devastating. And then on top of that, in order to see justice, you know, be performed or attempted in, in, in court you have to uh, have a huge expenditure to go halfway across, you know, uh, all across the state to to get there and observe a, a long and lengthy, grueling trial. So, and you know, and same goes for witnesses, people who saw something important and came forward and did their civic duty. Uh, you know, th- it shouldn't be a burden to them. But at the same time, Richard Allen deserves a fair trial. You know, having having a jury where it turns out like everybody's cousin was on the search party, or you know. Uh, People have business relationships. People have personal relationships with people directly involved. You know, coworkers at CVS. I mean, it, you could you could end up pulling some some jurors who could be very problematic for justice being done. So, having it be let's bring jury jurors from the outside in, but keep it here. I just think was uh, I'm glad they selected this because it, it feels like it kind of satisfies all the issues. Uh, the last thing that happened of interest, I, in my opinion, was the judge raised the issue of, you know, there's so much discovery, there's so much information to go through. It really doesn't seem possible for us to have this trial as scheduled in March. And she asked the defense if they wanted to go ahead and formally request that the trial be rescheduled. And they said at this point they did not. And they indicated that they would like to revisit the issue of the date of the trial at the next pretrial hearing, which will be the bail hearing on February 17th. 
I wrote down the the quote from Gull was, uh, I can't see that happening, referring to a March trial. She said, and then she kind of looking at the attorneys, you're looking, you're both looking at me like there's no way. Uh, and, and she and McClellan shared a bit of a laugh. Uh, I think McClellan referred to the March trial as ambitious. Ambitious indeed. Now, I think both Kevin and I expect for the trial to be delayed and that the defense will w- ultimately waive the speedy trial requirement. But we've talked and like there is a slim possibility if the defense feels the state's case is incredibly weak that they will try to go for a March trial because it'll be like not allowing the prosecution to take the time to get their case together. If they feel the prosecution is not prepared at this time, there could be a strategic reason to just go for it. If they feel like they could just demolish the credibility of the case against Allen, uh, just kind of do it quickly, get him out quick. There might be some strategic benefit in that, but we think it's unlikely Um that they will do this because again, the discovery issue, there's only two of them. Everything takes a long time when it comes to the justice system. So it's most likely going to get held back a lot. What's your thoughts on it? I think it is likely it's going to be postponed, but I'm curious as to why the defense didn't want to go ahead and uh, make that request. Now it'd be interesting to see what happens in February. And, of course, we'll be back here in February to cover that. Yeah, it seems like they're tempted by the idea of a March trial, but I just don't see it happening because there's so much. Well, and then, of course, there was a fourth part to all this, but not one that we or anybody else in the public or the prosecution or law enforcement got to witness, and uh, except for the people guarding Allen, of course. So that essentially was uh, the defense wanted to meet with the judge ex parte, to discuss funding for different experts um, to kind of be part of their case. And the reason why they did not want the prosecution there is because if a situation like that arises and then they don't call a certain expert that the prosecution knows they were interested in, the prosecution knows that probably some evidence surfaced that implicates Allen. And so they might ask to talk to that person. So they wanted to keep that super private. So, Essentially, law enforcement at this time, it was a very brief hearing. How long would you say it lasted? 85 minutes. Yeah, so it was very a lot of buildup and a, and a pretty brief situation all in all. So they basically, law enforcement escorted us all out. We all sort of spilled into the stairwells, and um, everyone made their way out of the courtroom, leaving the defense and the judge and the defendant to sort of talk things over. So unlike last time, we did not see Richard Allen depart. We just saw... Um, him arrive. And as we said, we'll be back at the next hearing in February. And between now and then, we're continuing to cover this case and whatever else uh, occurs in it. Um, all in all, what do you make, what do you, what should uh, listeners expect going forward in terms of, you know, what could happen at the bond hearing? The bond hearing will be interesting. Uh, it's very likely that more evidence will be presented at the bond hearing pertaining to what the state will argue is the guilt of Richard Allen. So that should give us a whole lot more to talk about. As always, thank you all so much for listening uh, and for your support. Hopefully you found this informative and helpful. And we also want to send our sincere thanks to the Delphi Public Library for allowing us to use their facilities to record this episode. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at 
murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet Discussion Group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.